So open your Bibles to Psalm 23, and I will read for us, and then we'll pray, and we'll jump into the word. This is a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Not only are you God most high, you are a God humble and lowly, and you speak to us. You are not silent. You've given us your word. So we ask now that you would take your word, which you have written through your servant, David, by your Holy Spirit, and apply it to our lives, that we may know who you are, know that you are the shepherd, the good shepherd. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, if you know any book of the Psalms, if you know any one of the Psalms, if you've memorized it, it's probably going to be Psalm 23. It is perhaps the most, it is the most familiar psalm, even to people who are not in church week in and week out. Even people who aren't Christians have probably heard of Psalm 23. And maybe uh, even people who have, are not Christians maybe have even memorized parts of it, just because it's a famous psalm. Um, but we have an intellectual knowledge of it, and maybe not uh, an actual practical knowledge of it, where we, where we see how it with the consequences it has, the implications it has for our lives. We know it, but we don't quite believe it. We haven't quite internalized it. Um, it's a psalm of David. Um, many of the psalms have an introduction. It says a psalm of David, but then it gives you some sort of narrative, like what was the occasion when the psalm was written? For example, Psalm 51, it says he wrote this psalm of confession after his sin with Bathsheba. Um, but with Psalm 23, we don't really have a specific historical context of David's life to point to, like what was happening in his life. But we can see in the psalm a parts that seem to relate to different, uh, different narratives, different events in David's life. And one of those is in Psalm, uh, not in Psalm, in 1 Samuel 16. But the first verse, the first verse of the psalm is, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. This is the central claim of Psalm 23, and everything else flows from that. Um, it's a meditation by David on the implications of that. And when he says, I shall not want, that doesn't mean that you don't want things. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you have no desires. The meaning here is that you will have no lack because the Lord is providing what you need. He knows what you need, when you need it, and where to get it. So David is going to unpack the implications of this truth, that the Lord is our shepherd. Um, and this, this idea of, of a shepherd and sheep, that's one of the most common metaphors, most common images in the Bible. Sheep are mentioned like 400 times in the Bible. Shepherds are mentioned about 100 times. And 
We see it from the beginning of the Bible to the end. The first time God is called a shepherd is in Genesis. Jacob says, he calls the Lord the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. And then in Revelation, we hear John, the, 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 the writer of Revelation, he says that, he's speaking of Jesus, and he says that the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And then in Psalm 100, we read that we are God's people, the sheep of his pasture. Of his pasture. So this, this is a huge idea, a huge image uh, in the Bible. And the frequency and the commonness of this comes in two parts. The first part is, first reason is that uh, sheep and shepherds was just such a central part of the agricultural life of Israel. But the second and more important reason is that they make a very apt metaphor of spiritual realities between our relationship to God and his relationship to us. And you've probably heard um, in other sermons uh, about how sheep are. You, maybe you've, you've heard that sheep are notoriously dumb. Um, and that's, that's true, I'm afraid. Um, but, it, but it's actually worse than that. Um, one, writer says, one writer says that sheep are singularly unintelligent. They're prone to wandering and unable to find the sheepfold even if it is within sight. <laughs> so it's not good. But on top of that, sheep are... Are, are utterly dependent creatures. Um, they rely on the shepherds for protection, for watering, for grazing, and for tending to injuries. And without a shepherd, sheep would not survive long at all. They would, they would die. Um, this is what the metaphor has to say about us. But the more remarkable thing is what the metaphor says about God. Shepherding was unglamorous work. It was not pretty. Um, and in David's case, it was the unenviable chore of the youngest child. David was the youngest of eight brothers, and he got the hard job of being the shepherd, keeping the sheep. And they are exposed. So shepherds are exposed to the elements, the heat by day, the cold by night. And at all times, there's the threat of predators, both animal predators and human. But there's another element that's really amazing. There's a unique closeness and a unique intimacy between shepherds and their sheep. Sheep come to know the voice of their shepherds to the, point, to, to the degree that you can take two different flocks and they can come together and then the shepherds, when they separate again, they can call their sheep and their sheep will follow them and the other sheep will follow the other shepherd. It's just a, a unique closeness and intimacy. So we see that the God, this is the most high and holy God of heaven, he is also the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is also the lowly, humble shepherd leading his people patiently, skillfully to water and to safe pasture. God is both transcendent and God is both and imminent. He's high up and lifted, holy, high and holy and lifted up, and he's low and gentle and humble. And perhaps this is why we see that in the Bible, so many of God's leaders, the leaders of God's people, are, are trained for the task by being shepherds. You think about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all shepherds. The giver of the law, Moses. He was a shepherd for 40 years before God called him to, be, to take the people out of Israel, out of Egypt. And then we come to David, who was a shepherd before he was anointed to be king of God's people. 
so here David is unpacking the implications of God being our shepherd. And there's three. There's three that we're going to cover. Um, in verses 1 to 3, uh, our shepherd provides. Number two, our shepherd is with us in trials. That's verse 4. And then in verses 5 and 6, our shepherd bestows an unshakable identity on us. Let's see how this is worked out in the psalm. So let's read again verses 1 to two, one to 3. A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In verse 2, we see that the shepherd is giving the essential things that a sheep provides, a sheep needs. Water, pasture, rest. Each day, the shepherd would water and graze the sheep and make them lie down to rest. Um, and the waters here, still waters, means, literally means waters of rest. I mean, this is not as simple as it might sound. Like, yes, there was this day-to-day humdrum life of a shepherd, but it was difficult work. Depending on the season, a pasture could have grass or no grass. This is not like North America. This is the Middle East. The rain comes, and the grass is there for a little while, and then it's gone. And then a stream, which you might have flowing at one time of year, isn't flowing at another time of year. Um, Without the shepherd, sheep might overgraze a field and then have no food, or they might go where they thought there was water, and they will find none. So we see in this image that God knows what we need, he knows when we need it, and he knows where to get it. And this includes physical needs, and that's often what we think of when we read this psalm, but it's actually not primarily physical needs that the psalmist is talking about. And we see that in in verse 3. It's spiritual needs that we're talking about. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This same word, um, restores my soul, also appears in Psalm 19, which is also a psalm of David. It's the same exact words, and we read this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Reviving the soul. So you look here, what is it that's actually restoring the soul? It's God's law, his word, his instruction. That's the kind of restoration that we need, is a spiritual restoration dependent upon that comes through God's word. We see this also in Psalm 119, um, in verses 25, 37, and 40. Um, The psalmist says, give me life according to your word. Give me life in your ways, according to your righteousness, and your righteousness give me life. In God's ways, in God's paths, in God's words, we find life. And it's not an idle word. It's not um, an empty word. It is powerful, restorative, and creative. Look at um, Deuteronomy 32, verse 47. It says, For it is no empty word to you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. God's word is the fundamental need, the fundamental essential that we require to live. God provides for us physically and spiritually, especially by his word. And he does this not because of who we are. Remember at the end it says, for his namesake. It's because of who God is that he does this. One of God's names, one of the names of God in scripture is Yahweh Yireh, which is the Lord provides. 
that is one of the fundamental characteristics of God, is that he provides. And since he is our shepherd, since he is our shepherd, the Lord provides, there is danger in wandering away from him or in giving ourselves to false shepherds. Some of you might feel that in your life, God isn't providing right now. Um, whether through whether through, through willful neglect uh, or ignorance, we've wandered away from God's word, and, it, and we're feeling like God's not providing because we have turned away from his provision, and we're labeling things uh, as from God when they're not really from him. And we're relying on them, things that are not from God, thinking they are from God, and then we're disappointed, and then we're distrusting God. You're looking for rest. You're looking for restoration in hollow and deceptive philosophies or ideologies, or you're looking for a righteousness that is defined by the world, and it leaves you wanting. You come to those things looking for peace, looking for satisfaction, and instead you find waterless clouds. You find dry stream beds, dry stream beds or, or overgrazed pastures. And then you come to doubt God. You come to doubt his provision. And so ignorant of God's life-giving, restorative word, we label things as from him which aren't. So when we wander from God, when we wander from his word, it's easier to doubt him. When we are invested in a sinful pattern of life, it's easier to doubt him, harder to believe him. But by God's grace, we pray that he would give us dissatisfaction in those things, that he would make us unsatisfied. And because of that, um, why, should we, why should we give thanks for those things? Because it's God's mercy and grace telling us this is not what you need. When you are dissatisfied in this world, when you're finding that what you're relying on isn't providing what you thought it was going to provide, that's God's grace to you telling you what you really need is me. Those other things are going to fail you. They're going to let you down. And you need to return to me, return to my word, return to the, the life that I can give you, that I can restore to you through my grace. So come, come find rest in the good shepherd and he will provide but maybe, maybe it's not a sin problem. Maybe you're experiencing some trial. Maybe you're experiencing something because you're not, not because you're wandering, but because you're following Jesus, and you are suffering because of that. And we see what David has to say about this in verse 4. Look at verse 4. It says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The Lord being our shepherd doesn't mean that everything is going to be green and sunshine. There are trials in life. And David's talking about not just worries or anxiety. He's talking about the shadow of death. Death is looming over him. That's what he has in view here. When you're in the valley, you are more uniquely susceptible to attack. Um, that's where the bandits hide out. That's where the animals come down from the mountain to, to tear and destroy and eat. Um, and in the Middle East, you can have rain 50 miles away, and then a flash flood comes where it was a dry stream bed before, now it's a coursing, rushing river. And it can take you up, and people have drowned. Even in the modern day, people have drowned. Tourists have gone and drowned in this kind of event. 
The valley brings worry, anxiety, and the real prospect of death. So when we look at David's life, we, we can tell that he's speaking from experience. He was a shepherd. He fought off lions and bears to defend his flock. But then after he was anointed to be king by Samuel in, 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 in 1 Samuel chapter 16, he, the very next chapter, he faces off with Goliath. Life's in danger again. And then in the chapter after that, he's serving in, in Saul's court, and Saul's jealous of David, and Saul tries to pen David to the wall with a spear twice. And then for the, for the next 10, 15 years, David is running and fleeing for his life, hiding in caves, hiding in mountains. He's anointed king, but the other king, Saul, is trying to destroy him, trying to kill him. He faced evil, but he did not fear it. He says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. This is one of the key, one of the key sentences in this, in this psalm. Um, we know this because in, in the Hebrew, it's a verbless phrase, a verbless clause. Like, if you want to make a, if you want to pack a rhetorical punch in Hebrew, you, you don't have a verb. Doesn't work in English, um, but in Hebrew, it works. And the two, that are, the two phrases that are that in this psalm is, the Lord is my shepherd, and you are with me. What makes all the difference in David's experience of the valley of the shadow of death is that the Lord is with him. And notice also that this is the same verse where, God, where, where David starts to speak to God directly. Um, he says, you are with me. Before, he was talking about God in third person. Now he's speaking to the Lord directly. You are with me. In trials and dangers, we should turn to the shepherd and speak to him. We lean into the comfort of his rod, which is for protection, and his staff, which is for discipline. So the rod um, protects us from enemies without, and the staff protects us from the enemy within ourselves. That's where the valley is where God disciplines and trains and forms his people. Um, trials are God's ways of shaping people into his likeness. So think about Moses. So he was, he grew up in Egypt, got all the training there, 40 years. When he was 40 years old, he had to flee Egypt, and he spent 40 years in the desert shepherding flocks. And then when he was 80 years old, 80 years old God said, you're ready, now you can go back and take my people out of Egypt. And then we see with um, David, after he was anointed king, what, did he, what happened? Did he become king right away? No, he, wasn't. he was anointed king by Samuel. The Spirit of God came upon him, but then he had to run for his life for almost two decades. He spent his 20s and 30s running and hiding for his life. And so again, when he writes about walking in the valley of the shadow of death, he knows what he's talking about. And this uncovers one of the deep, deep truths of Scripture. That, and, and it's not just Scripture, but Christ's life and also the Christian life. Before glory, before glory and exaltation, there is trial and humiliation. Or another way to say this is that the cross comes before the crown. And we see this in David's anointing. Uh, so Samuel goes to, to Bethlehem, where, where Jesse is. That's Jesse's, uh, is David's father. And he's got a bunch of sons. And God has rejected Saul from being king because God had spoken to Saul, Saul often asks, you know, what does the Lord want me to do? And then he hears what the Lord wants him to do, and then he goes and he doesn't do it. And so God stopped speaking to Saul. 
because he wouldn't listen. Even when Saul kept asking, God wouldn't speak because he never would listen. And so now God is anointing a new king. And he sends Samuel to Jesse. And, tell, and, and Samuel says, get all your sons together and bring them to this feast. And Jesse gets seven of his sons, but he doesn't bring David. David is the youngest, the least, the smallest. And then each of the seven sons passes before Samuel. And God tells Samuel, nope, not this one, not this one. I have not chosen him. All of them he rejects. And then this is what he says. This is what, um, what Samuel says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 11 to 13. He says, Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Think about David. His life from the very earliest times was a life of lowliness and humiliation. He was the youngest. He had the menial shepherding job. And when Samuel told Jesse to get all your sons together, he omitted David as if he didn't really belong there. Seems very strange, doesn't it? Another, the, another meaning for the word youngest in, in the Hebrew is also insignificant or unimportant. The word, same word is used for both. So in, in David's own family, he was seen as unimportant and insignificant. But it was that very person that God was choosing to be his king. And then after he was anointed king, filled with the Spirit, he didn't ascend the throne until maybe two, dec- two decades later. He was only 40 years old when he became king over all of Israel. But instead he had suffering, trial, exile, and humiliation. And this is the same pattern that we find in the gospel. Think about Jesus' life. Like David, Jesus was anointed. At the beginning of his ministry, he was baptized, anointed with the Holy Spirit. Then what happened? He went and he conquered the Roman Empire. No, he didn't. He had a life of obscurity in backwater part of the Roman Empire. He was rejected by the leaders of his society, the Jewish leaders and the priests. He suffered. He was crucified. He was buried. He died. His disciples, his disciples wanted to ride with Jesus to glory and overthrow the empire. And when they said, when, when, when Peter first heard Jesus say, i got to suffer, I'm going to die, Peter said, no, no, not you. And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, because that was exactly what he came to do, was to suffer and to die. The good shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus, was also the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what we sheep desperately need. We... We are alienated from our God. We are wandering from him constantly. Um, Despite every earthly glory, despite every accomplishment that we have, all of that is overshadowed by the sentence of death. The shadow of death looms over our lives because of sin. Our rebellion against God warrants the just penalty of death. But Jesus, our 
good shepherd, our king, took our place. He died our death, and he gave us life. That's what Jesus' life and ministry was all about, was to give his life for many. And he lived that life. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. And then he rose from the dead and gave us his glorious resurrection life. He gives that to everyone who puts their trust and their faith in him. This has implications. This has implications for us. Um, and this is what he said. We see this. He, he actually says, this is what the whole scripture is about. Um, in Luke, Luke chapter 24, um, he speaks to his disciples. Remember, he talks to those two who are walking down the road, and they don't recognize it's Jesus, and they're depressed because they thought that he was the Messiah, and he's dead now, and now he's walking and talking with them. And then he hears all this that they're saying, all of their, their sadness over Jesus dying. And then he says to them, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. He's saying the whole Bible is about suffering and then entering into glory. The suffering servant and then ascending the throne into glory. Christ passed through death and humiliation. He rose from the dead, and now he is seated on high in heaven in glory. The cross, then the crown. So David can have no fear of death. We can have no fear of death because Christ has passed through the shadow of death and emerged on the other side in glory. He says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, Fear not, for... I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. What this means for us is that nothing in this life can comfort you in death. Nothing in this world can shepherd you through that valley except Christ, because he's the only one who's passed through it and emerged on the other side. He's gone before you, and he can be with you in it. But this pattern also has consequences for us now. Um, I tell our students often that we are living in the in-between, between Christ's first coming and his second coming. In his first coming, he came in humility, humiliation, humble. In his second coming, he's going to come in power and in glory. But right now, we're in the in-between. We're not in the time of glory and power. We're in the time of sojourning, wilderness wandering, exile, weakness. The way that the church exists in the present world is not through power and glory, but through weakness and humility, as Christ modeled for us in his first coming. So if you try to live in glory now, you're going to be sorely disappointed. If you try to build a kingdom here according to the worldly patterns, that kingdom is going to be destroyed. That glory is going to be destroyed. This is what Jesus says in, in Luke 14, 11. He says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. What this means for us is that we live now to humbly follow and gently uh, serve the lowly, gentle service, sir, uh, shepherd, Jesus. He will be with you, and he will lead you in all of your trials. And when you experience trials, you will know that you are being shaped and conformed into his image. You are becoming like him through your suffering. That brings us to our, to our third point. The shepherd bestows an unshakable identity. 
verses 5 to 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, This final section, it it, it shifts scenes a little bit. Um, Instead of seeing uh, God the shepherd, we're seeing God the king. And he is setting a feast before David. And David's enemies are powerless to stop it. God anoints David. He names him king. And he fills him with the Holy Spirit. And this acceptance, this acceptance and welcoming of God into his house, and this identity that David receives from God, it supersedes every other identity that he has. David knows that God is his shepherd, his good king, whose goodness and mercy will follow him all the days of his life. That word for mercy is the word for God's covenant love, his steadfast love. That love that you know, if God has that, there's nothing that can take it away from you. So David can say, I shall dwell. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever because it depends not on his... um, unstable obedience, his inconsistent obedience, but on God's unfailing promise. It depends on his new identity, his new God-given identity, and not on the shifting sands of a self-made identity. So just notice the consequences this has for David in his life. In chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, David goes to where the battle is, where um, Goliath is challenging the, the nation of Israel, and everybody is cowering in the camp. Even King Saul is cowering in the camp. And, and David sees this, this, this giant Philistine mocking the God of Israel. And he's going around asking people, hey, uh, what, what's going to be done for the person who goes and defeats this guy? And um, like, this guy's dishonoring our God. We need to do something about that. And then people answer him and they say, this is, what, this is what's going to be done. Um, and then David's older brother, there's three brothers that are already there. David's going back and forth between home and bringing food to the troops. And he's asking this question, asking all the soldiers, trying to get somebody to step up. Um, But then his brother, Eliab, overhears what David is doing. Here's what David says. And this is what Eliab says in uh, chapter 17, verse 28 and 30. He says, it says, Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. It's very interesting. Here is David, the youngest, being rebuked by his oldest brother, and he is being suspected of evil intention by his oldest brother. And this might be a devastating criticism for somebody whose primary identity is in their family or in what their brothers think of them or in what their spouse thinks of them or their parents think of them. But for David, he, it, just, it just rolls off of him um, because God has marked him. God has anointed him, has filled him with his spirit, and even when no one yet recognized it, he's the king. And not even his own brother who saw David be anointed as king was accepting that. 
But David had received that. And that was where he found his primary identity. And his brother could not undermine that. So maybe, maybe you, maybe you feel secure in your identity. Maybe you are happy in your job. You're happy in your studies. You're happy in your marriage or in, your, in a relationship that you have or in your role as father or mother. And you should praise the Lord for that if you are happy in those roles. And we should take delight in the God-given roles that we have. There's so many things that we don't choose in life. They are from, they're from God. He's put us in those positions. And that's part of the givenness of life. But if you let those things become the core of who you are, the core of your identity, they will, fa- they will fail you. Maybe you're not as good of a student or not as good at your job as you had hoped. Maybe you're not as good of a husband as you thought you'd be or a, of a wife or a mom or a dad. And if you keep measuring yourself by that, it's going to destroy you. It's an insecure foundation. You'll always be wondering about your worth. And we constantly, our society constantly encourages this measuring of ourselves by what we do, a a defining of ourselves by what we do. Maybe you saw the Batman movie, uh, not the the newest one, but like Batman Begins. You know, uh, he says, it's what I do that defines me. It's like the, I can't really do the voice. (laughs) Yeah, not Christian Bale. Okay. That's the spirit of the age, that you define yourself by what you do. And it's one of the first things that you, you ask when you meet people, right? You ask, what do you do? And they tell you what their job is. Um, I have a friend who, who does a different thing. He, he asks people instead, who are you? And when he asks that, uh, they in- inevitably say, well, I do this. And, you know, they tell what the job is that they do. And he says, no, 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 uh, that's what you do. I want to know who you are. And, and then he takes that opportunity to share that he is a Christian. This is who I am. This is the core of my identity. That's who I am. And if you can move past the initial awkwardness of that conversation, because it would be kind of startling. It's not how people typically think the conversation is going to go. But if you get past that initial awkwardness, you come to a, a deep truth. If you are what you do, then one day you are going to lose who you are. Maybe you're a student, maybe you're a band kid, or maybe you're in swim team, or maybe you're an athlete. One day you're going to graduate, and you won't have those anymore. You won't have that tribe, that that group that gave you a sense of identity. It'll be gone. And you won't have grades to constantly evaluate your life by. Maybe you're an engineer. And you do it for 40 years. And you you have that identity. But then you retire. And then you don't know what to do with yourself. You're you're lost. Who am I now that I'm not doing what I've done for 40 years? This is where people have crises after they retire. Who are you? Um, Maybe you're a mom or dad. And your your kids, they, they grow up. They graduate, they leave. And then, and then where do you find the meaning? Where do you find the core of who you are? Can't be that because it's gone. These are real and worthy roles, um, but they are feeble foundations for our identity. Um, they're shifting sands that will finally remove 
they will remove themselves. The shifting sands of time will finally remove all those identities. But when you follow Jesus, he gives you a new identity, a new name, his own name. He writes his mark, his seal upon your heart, upon your forehead. And not even death can take that away. He will be your shepherd through every circumstance of life, even passing through death with you and bringing you into his eternal house, his eternal life at the end of time. So in closing, I want you to consider a few things. Meditate on the implications of this psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Are you wandering? Are you dissatisfied with something in life or with life in general? Come to the shepherd. That's a mercy that God gives you dissatisfaction. That is his voice calling you to return, his seeking out the lost. Let his word restore your soul and lead you. Are you trying to live in glory now as opposed to humility and trial? Are you trying to have the cross? Are you trying to have the crown without the cross? You may, in doing that, be opposing God's purposes for your life to shape you into the image of Christ. Whatever worldly glory you have now will pale in comparison to the glory of Christ when he comes again. And death, death will take away every earthly glory, every self-made identity. Only following Christ leads to everlasting glory. Only in Christ do we have an identity which no one can take away. No one and nothing can take away. So let us follow Jesus, the great shepherd and overseer of our souls, and entrust ourselves to him. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we praise you for being the good shepherd. You are indeed high and lifted up, creator and sustainer of the universe. And yet you have come down to be with us. And you are with us now in our trials. You have lived through trial and suffering. And now, Lord, we, we ask that you would lead us. Lead us by your word. Lead us by your example. And give us your name, new name, an everlasting name, so that who we are can never be taken from us. Be with us this week. Be with us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.